Michael asked me to share with you this morning my own spiritual journey with regard to the sanctuary message. And as he asked me that, I felt almost overwhelmed, like, man, where do I start? Uh, so much I want to say, so little time to say it, so much that I have gotten excited about. How do I share that in just a few minutes? Um, but I'm going to try. And God's going to help me to say what he wants me to say today. And uh, this is actually, I've shared parts of this before, but I've never tried to put it all together, so you really stretched me. But uh, it was a welcome stretch. So uh, I, I should say that if I would put one name at the head of those who inspired me about the sanctuary doctrine, it would be Michael's dad. Dr. Hazel taught me the doctrine of the sanctuary. And I learned more from that class about the sanctuary than I've ever learned anywhere else. So I'm just adding a few pieces of icing on the cake to what he already uh, bequeathed to me. But, well, you should know I'm a fourth generation Seventh-day Adventist. As Joanne's mother-in-law, Alberta Mazat, liked to say, we must have our Adventist message racing through our genes and chromosomes by this time. And I was raised in a God-fearing home with godly Bible teachers who believed in the sanctuary message, and one of my teachers actually bought us a new Bible and spent the whole year, our senior year, just underlining all the texts about the doctrines of the Bible in red and all the promises in blue, and then making us memorize those. And then our final exam was just, he gave us a list of texts and we had to find them in the Bible. So praise God for Bible teachers in high school and beyond uh, and below everywhere that are teaching this, this great message. Um, at the Seventh-day Adventist College that I attended and then at the se seminary in the now I have to tell about that age, uh, you know, a few years after Noah's flood is what I'd rather say, because that's probably close to the truth. But uh, uh, when I was going in the 60s and early 70s to college and to seminary, there wasn't much said about the sanctuary. There was no class at my college. And su more surprisingly, the seminary had no class in the doctrine of the sanctuary. There's a little history behind that, but. The fact was, I never got a class in the Sanctuary Doctrine at the seminary. Little pieces were plugged in. I think people believed in the Sanctuary, but it had not developed into, hey, it's important. We need to have a special class on this. And so I found myself as a young pastor at the ripe old age of 24, heading to Buckeye, Arizona. You think it's hot down here in the summertime. Buckeye holds the record with Death Valley almost every day of the summer at 20 degree, 120 degrees in the shade, sometimes 125. And so here I arrived the first Sabbath to preach at Buckeye, Arizona. I was 24, and the youngest person in the church was 65. I didn't think that was, I thought that was really old then. I think that's pretty young now, but that was, that was the reaction. And, Elder Hayward was my, was my district supervisor, pastor, and anybody who knew James Hayward, he had a model of the sanctuary, this beautiful model that he had built himself. 
And he spent a whole day helping me erect it out there uh, in the front of the church, this little Buckeye church. It took up about a third of the church, you know, but it was there so that anyone that came for our evangelistic meetings that we were having, I could walk them through the sanctuary. I had never preached a sermon on the sanctuary. And so I worked hard, many hours writing my notes so that I'd remember what to say. And I got there for that night when I was to preach on the sanctuary. I stood up to preach, and I opened my Bible, and I'd left my notes at home, 45 minutes back. <laughs> and so it was my first extemporaneous sermon, <laughs> and also the first sermon on the sanctuary. And by God's grace, I'm not a very good mathematician, but he helped me get through the math from 457 BC past the zero year and on to 1844 and the 2300 days somehow came out right. And I made the calculations and fortunately I had a great visual aid so I could walk them through the pieces of the sanctuary and say something meaningful. Sermon was over and I moved on to the next topic because you see the sanctuary had not touched my heart. It was 2,300 days to be diagrammed. It was a list of texts about what Jesus started to do in 1844, but it had little, if any, spiritual impact upon my personal life. Well, you know, throughout my childhood and adult years, the subject of the judgment was not good news for me. I would go to hear evangelistic series, and when the preacher would shame us with our bad deeds and try to scare us into heaven by the fear of the judgment, I would tremble. And when he would say, your name may come up any time, are you ready for the judgment? I said, no, Lord, I'm not ready. Please don't let my name come up. I was afraid of the judgment I was terrified of the judgment. And so in my first district back from seminary, I refused to preach on the judgment until one prayer meeting series. We were studying the book of Psalms. C.S. Lewis, anybody here a C.S. Lewis fan? Great book on reflecting the Psalms. And I, we went through every chapter of that book dealing with the different themes of the Psalms, except I skipped one. You guess which one I skipped? the one on the judgment. But then my conscience started smiting me. I said, Lord, there must be some good news in the judgment that I've missed. So I just spent the week, that week before the next prayer meeting, just opening up my Bible and looking through the Psalms, just reading the whole book of Psalms. Lord, show me about the judgment from the Psalms. And I didn't have to get far. I got to Psalm 7, and I read verse 8. The Lord shall judge the peoples. And then these words popped out at me, where the psalmist, David, says, Judge me, O Lord! Judge me, O Lord! I said, am I reading this right? And then I kept on reading. Four, three more times he says that in the psalms. Judge me! Like, as if, to, as if he were saying, Hurry up, Lord! Bring it on! I can hardly wait! Come on! Bring on the judgment! I said, how could David pray such a prayer? Didn't he understand the seriousness of sin? Didn't he understand the certainty of the judgment? And the answer is yes. So I kept reading, and I got to Psalm 51. 
where David prayed that great prayer of repentance after his heart had been awakened. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. And on he prays down into verse verse, uh, 4 against you. You only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Yes, he knew the judgment was certain. And his prayer showed he knew that his sin was real. He was confessing not only his act of adultery and power rape against Bathsheba, not only his murder against Uriah, but he goes into his very motives and he says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, my very heart. As you said, we have a carnal nature. And verse 6, behold, you desire truth in the inward part, in the hidden part you will make me to know know, uh, wisdom. He knew that even if he did the right things, he often had wrong motives, and so he was confessing all of this. So David knew he was a great sinner. He knew that there was a solemn judgment, but he knew something else. And so he prays it. My favorite verse of the prayer, verse 7, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Hyssop, you remember, was that branch that was dipped in the blood of the Passover lamb and then put on the doorpost and the lintels of the houses so that when the destroying angel passed over, everyone who was under the blood was saved. Now, I understand, my wife told me, when you go down this weekend, there's a picture down on this campus someplace, she saw it when she was here last, of a father putting blood on the doorpost of that house. If anybody knows where that picture is, come and see me afterwards because Joanne wants me to take a picture of it and if I don't bring it back, I'm going to be in trouble. So please help me. (laughs) I would also like to see it for myself. But David understood that he could pray to God, cover me with the blood of the Lamb. He understood that God was in the business of forgiving our sins and covering us with the robe of his righteousness. He understood that as he confessed his sins to God, God acquitted him, pardoned him, and cleansed him. There's a statement Ellen White makes that we don't often read because it sounds so radical. This is Ellen White talking. Volume 2 of Selected Messages. We are not to be anxious about what Christ and God think of us. Did you catch that? We're not to be anxious about what Christ and God think of us, but but about what God thinks of Christ, our substitute. What does Christ, what does God think about Christ, our substitute? Does he accept him? And so if every day we turn our lives over to Jesus, we, can, we just surrender our way to him, then 
Life is beautiful. God looks not at us, but he looks at Jesus, our substitute. And we are accepted in the beloved according to Ephesians chapter 1. And so I began to learn about assurance in the judgment. Good news, almost too good news to be true. Uh, For several years, after graduating from the theological seminary, I had preached lots of sermons about Jesus, but I had never, never had assurance of salvation in Jesus to offer to someone. I actually took a course at the seminary on righteousness by faith, by our leading proponent of righteousness by faith in the, in the church. He wrote the Sabbath school lesson several times on righteousness by faith. Unfortunately, back in high school, I'd had a teacher have us memorize from Christ's Object Lessons, page 166, you should never say or feel that you are saved. I memorized that, and I internalized that, and that kept me from ever accepting the gospel. Even when I heard these powerful truths presented of righteousness by faith in that class, I wanted to understand it. In fact, I studied harder for the final exam on that course in righteousness by faith than I had ever studied before for any course. Those little blue books we used to write final exams on, I filled two blue books. Never did that before or since. And when I got my final exam back from that course, only time in my life, A+. Can you imagine an A-plus in righteousness by faith? I had arrived (laughs) with only one small problem. I never had experienced righteousness by faith. So I got out as a preacher and preached lots of sermons about Jesus and gave no one assurance of salvation in Jesus. It wasn't until later I realized Ellen White wasn't talking about lack of assurance. She was talking about the once saved, always saved heresy. Because if I don't ever take anyone's word for reading a quotation from Ellen White, if you wonder about it, except look it up yourself. Because when you look up this this 166 page, you find that three lines later, Ellen White says, we may give ourselves to him and know that he accepts us. Ellen White understood assurance of salvation in Jesus, but she didn't want us to turn it into a once-saved, always-saved heresy. She had the balanced understanding of the gospel. Well, through a chain of wonderful circumstances, God led me one of my pastor friends realized that I didn't understand about how to accept Jesus. We were pitching tents there in Camp Yava Pines in Arizona. And after a day of hard pitching of tents, he took me back behind the tent and he said, could we have a Bible study together? And I said, this is kind of funny. You know, we're both pastors. Why does he want to give me a Bible study? And he started giving me a Bible study on salvation. He said, if you, do you have assurance of salvation? I said, I hope so. 
So he said, well, let's look up a text or two. So he had me look up John 6, 47. He that believes in me has everlasting life. He says, do you believe in Jesus? I said, what a crazy question. I'm an Adventist pastor. Of course I believe in Jesus. Do you have everlasting life? I hope so. We did that about five times until he said, well, maybe I better change verses. So he changed to 1 John chapter 5, verse, verse uh, 13. Uh, he said, please read that. And so I read it. I write this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have everlasting life. He says, do you believe in the name of the Son of God? Yeah, I'm a pastor. Why are you asking me these stupid questions? Then do you know that you have eternal life? And I was just ready to say for the seventh or eighth time, I hope so, when the Spirit pounded me in my heart. And I was able to open my mouth and say, yes, I believe. Not because I feel it, not because I'm worthy, but because Jesus has said it. And Jesus is not a liar. And I reached out that day and took the gift of eternal life. And I've never been the same since. Do I sometimes stumble and fall? Yes. But he's the father that picks me up and helps me to walk. And the more I look into his eyes, the closer I come to him. Because by beholding, we become changed but I reach out and take him every day. And that relationship is one of joy and one of growth. Praise God for the message of justification by faith. Now, when I saw this truth, here I was preaching in Flagstaff. I said, I gotta share this. I gotta find this everywhere in the Bible. And so I started looking. And just at that time, someone sent to camp meeting, bless his heart, Leslie Harding. Anybody remember Leslie Harding? And he gave a whole series on the sanctuary. Warmed my heart. He had a little red book called The Cross and the Shadow, and Cross and Its Shadow. And I read that, and in the back he had 25 books that he suggested we read. I got them all and read them. And then I found out he had 30 hours of cassette tapes on the sanctuary, and I got them, and I read them, listened to them, and I took copious notes, hundreds of pages of notes on that. The sanctuary came alive! I'm thankful to Dr. Harding. May his soul rest in peace. But there were questions that were raised because some of those books said this means this, this part of the sanctuary means this, this part of the sanctuary means this, and I couldn't understand how to get it all together. And, and so I said, man, i got to study this more. And it drove me to such passion for this subject that I finally said, I'm going back to study. Just at that time, I'd gotten a call to the big island of Hawaii. Remember, I was in Flagstaff, Arizona. We get 270 inches of snow there every year. One summer, uh, one storm in a weekend, we had eight feet of snow. 
And once the snowplows were finished, you didn't know there were any houses in town. It was just a big white wall through town. That's where I came from. So here was this call to go and to sip pink lemonade on the black sands of the big island. And then here's this call that the spirit is yanking at me to go back to the flatlands and the frigid cold of Michigan. Didn't seem to be much of a choice, except the spirit had other ideas. And I sent out the letters of inquiry, and one day, on the Sabbath afternoon after church, I went to the mailbox, I got three letters from three, I think one was your dad, two other professors. They didn't know I'd written to three of them. They didn't answer me for three months, but all the letters came back at the same day, in the same box saying, you need to come. You need to come. So we drove through a blizzard, 1,500 miles, in the middle of a blizzard to get back to Andrews. My first class was with Dr. Hazel. And there I looked at the list of papers I could write, and one of the topics was principles of biblical typology. And I was able to fulfill my passion and spent several, several years writing on that topic. The sanctuary came alive. Well, I finished my doctoral work, and they weren't sure that they could trust an Andrews graduate to teach at the seminary. I would be the first guinea pig. So they were a little afraid. They figured I needed maybe a little more training, so they sent me off for a few months to Israel to get some postdoctoral training so they wouldn't look like they were inbreeding, you know, Andrews into Andrews. And while I was there, the storm broke in the Adventist church. It was 1980, and that fall, you remember, 1979, Desmond Ford gave his infamous lecture at the forum meeting at Pacific Union Co College, and then he spent a year writing his 991-page manuscript seeking to detract from, destroy, and defeat the sanctuary message of Adventists. Here I was in Israel, no cell phones then, no emails then. A phone call cost a fortune still then. And we had no access to Adventist Review. We were all on by ourselves there, and I had no idea what was going on in my church. So I come back right after the Glacier View meeting. I was supposed to start teaching in a few weeks. And I had a knock on the door. Here was my best theological friend knocking on my door, but he had in his hand a big stack of books. He put them down on my living room table, and he looked at me, and he said, Dick, I dare you to read these and stay an Adventist. I said, what do you mean? What are you talking about? He, he was getting his doctorate degree, too. And he said, I've been studying all these materials of Brinsmead and Ford, and I am convinced this sanctuary doctrine isn't true. And I want you to come with me. Let's get out while we're getting out is good. And we'll start our own church based on the gospel. Well, I had seen too much happen in this church for me to just up and leave. I was determined, however, that I wanted to make sure that this doctrine was sound. I knew that in a few weeks I would be teaching seminary students who were also reading this 991-page manuscript. 
I needed to understand it. So in addition to preparing for classes, every night I would hop into bed for a little light bedtime reading. <laughs> I would open the 991-page document and read a little further the things that I had questions about that I didn't have answers to. First chapter was easier. It was about typology. I could see he was way off on that. He missed the boat on it. But as I got into prophecy and all the year-day principle and the, the interpretation of Daniel 7 and Daniel 8 and all of those things, there were so many questions that were raised I didn't have answers for. And I, I, I was convicted beyond a shadow of a doubt that the heartbeat of Adventism is the sanctuary message. Ellen White calls it the very foundation of our faith. And if we're wrong on that, why would I want to stay an Adventist? Just to be a cultural Adventist. Every other doctrine we teach, you find somewhere else in some other church. You believe the sanctuary message, you only find it in Adventism. And so I came to the conclusion that I was going to study the deepest I knew how to study. But if I could not find sufficient evidence for this truth, I, was, I had to leave. Because I didn't want to be an Adventist simply because the professor had taught me, even if it was Professor Hazel, or if my parents had taught me, or if the pastors had taught me, or if the pioneers had said so, or even if the prophet had said so. Because Ellen White herself said, believe it because scripture says so. And so started weeks and months of anguishing. I wasn't alone. Some of you who were doing the same thing, praying in little groups, seeking for God's guidance to help us through our way, our way through. I'm thankful for our church at that time. The administration didn't just shove these problems under the rug and pretend they would go away. They set up a whole Daniel and Revelation committee that met for 10 years. And before it stopped meeting, I got to be a part of it and write a couple of those papers. But the writings of William Shea, for example, that first volume that came out, Selected Studies and in Prophetic Interpretation, were like gold to me. I had wrestled over the year-day principle. How come we have only two texts, you know? Ezekiel 4, 6 and Numbers 14, 34, and neither are those of in Daniel. And here I come to the chapters in Shea's book where he, had, he shows 28 reasons for believing in the year-day principle, and most of them are in Daniel. I remember halfway through reading those chapters when I just, I just put the book down, I looked up and I said, God, I give up. I can't fight you anymore. This doctrine is true. I was searching for just enough evidence to hang my doubts on and I'd stay an Adventist. Instead, I, I found an overwhelming array of evidence and the objections steadily melted away like hoarfrost before the rising sun. And so now I'm here, yeah, it's going on 40 years since, and I'm here to testify that I believe the sanctuary message 
more firmly than I ever have believed it. I find that it is more solidly built and established in Scripture than I ever could have imagined. And I have been, I've been rejoicing, like, like Gerard has said, when students come, you know, back in the 80s and the 90s, we had classes at the sanctuary, and I could, I could expect that at least half would be against the sanctuary message. I would be facing opposition to this message. It would be like conducting an evangelistic series in that sanctuary class, wrestling for the hearts of pastors to actually accept this message. And my, aside from my love letters that I've saved from my wife, the most precious stack of letters I have are the letters from students who, after the class, would write, I came into this class a sanctuary doubter, but I'm going back to share with my dad, who's still a sanctuary doubter, the blessed truth of this message. Now, we didn't, we didn't win them all. They can't convert everyone. They have to be open to it. The Holy Spirit can only reach in, but there were... There were holy moments in those class periods where the Spirit gave you just what to say at the right time. So those were the years when the question was, is the sanctuary true? And I could unequivocally say, yes. You have a doubt, bring it on. I've had that same doubt. (laughs) Let's wrestle with it together. If I haven't heard your doubt, come to my office and let's, let's have at it. And it was exciting times. Scary times, but exciting times. You know, the last 20 years, 15 or 20 years, the number of people that doubt the sanctuary in my class are very few. The tone has totally changed as we've shifted from truth-based modernism to feeling-based postmodernism. And now people don't ask so much, is it true? I still teach them why it is, because they need to know that. But that's not the burning passion of their heart. The burning passion of their heart is, so what? What difference does it make in my life if I believe the sanctuary doctrine or if I don't? Show me the difference. And so for my classes now at the sanctuary, I give them the exams, the final exam questions, already the first day. Simplifies things. Of course, they have to read. I've, you know, this book, the sanctuary book that is being published is 800 pages. <laughs> so they have, to do, they have to do a lot of work in my class, but they already know what they're looking for. First question, is it true? And I give them all the arguments from the detractors. Show me from Scripture that it's true. And the second question is, so what? What practical difference does it make? Those are the two, those are the two things we're facing. Well, my assignment today, and I've shared some of it already, the answer is, is it true? But, I'm sorry, the assignment today was not, is it true, but so what? So in the last few minutes that I have, 
I want to uh, actually give a testimony based upon the testimony of others, namely the Bible writers themselves. I want to call up my biblical authors who have written about the sanctuary. And instead of asking them the question, what about the truthfulness of this? I want to ask them the question, can you help me to know what difference it makes in my life? And here's what I want to share. Let's start first, though. We've got an expert in the pioneers sitting next to me, sitting over here beside me. But I can't resist this one, one paragraph from Uriah Smith in Review and Herald, 1858. Have you ever seen a paragraph in print where every sentence ends with an exclamation mark? Here's one. And the one that everyone except one, the last one doesn't, and I think it deserves one. Now, if you're from Victor Borga days, where the pianist and the uh, humorist invented phonetic pronunciation, you know, he had a way of saying it out loud, uh, exclamation point. It was something like what? Uh, okay, you guys know that. So you add those at the end of every sentence, and here's what, here's what it is. Did it make a difference to Uriah Smith as they went through 1844 and they hammered out this doctrine? Here it starts. The sanctuary. Okay, I'll, I won't do that again, but you just do that every time, okay? Momentous subject. Grand nucleus around which cluster the glorious constellations of present truth. How it opens to our understanding the plan of salvation. How it lifts the veil from the position of our Lord in heaven. What a halo of glory it throws upon his ministry. What a divine harmony it establishes with the word of God. What a flood of light it pours upon past fulfillment of prophecy. How it fortifies the mighty truths of these last days. What a glory it sheds upon the future. With what hope and joy and consolation it fills the heart of the believer. Glorious subject. And then there's the last sentence. I'm going to add it because he didn't. Its importance can neither be overdrawn nor overestimated. Exclamation point. All right, moving to the Bible. Ask Moses. He'll tell you why this sanctuary doctrine is so relevant for us today. You go to the very first reference to the sanctuary in Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9, when God says to Moses, let them make me a sanctuary. And then he tells us why. That I may dwell among them. We can get off on high and theories about what the sanctuary is for, but here it's all wrapped up. God says, I want to be close to you. That's why you can go to the texts in Jeremiah 17 and in Isaiah 26 and Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 26, and you find that God had a sanctuary from the very beginning of creation. And the sanctuary, even before sin, had as its purpose to invite the unfallen universe to the mountain of his holiness, to the place of his congregation. 
where they could worship him. So before it even took on the role of solving the sin problem, soteriology, we put it in theological terms, it had the purpose of inviting his creatures to come to worship and praise. My students who like, who whose ears like to be tickled with big theological terms, I summarize it this way. Before soteriology was doxology. Amen. Before the plan of salvation was a reality, it wasn't needed, everyone was perfect, Lucifer hadn't sinned, the sanctuary was still there because God in his very being has the principle of Emmanuel, God with us. That's what the sanctuary message is from the very start of Exodus. He wants to come close. Now sin has put up a barrier, so the sanctuary needed to take on another circumstance to get rid of the sin problem so that we could come close. But throughout eternity, don't let anyone tell you the sanctuary will be gone when the end of time comes. You read Revelation chapter 21, verse 21, where it says, John says, I saw no temple there. And some people think there's no temple then that exists. Read it closely. He doesn't say, I saw no temple. He said, I didn't see any temple in the city. Why not? Because Revelation 21, verses 1 to 3, the whole city comes down and God says, look, John, the tabernacle of God is with men. The whole city's now become the tabernacle. And he measures it, and it's the shape of a cube, the shape of the most holy place. And now the whole city is the place where we have rooms in the Holy of Holies and will live with him in the sanctuary for eternity. The sanctuary exists from present, from, the, from infinity past and, and to uh, infinity future. Eternity. Uh, when I went to, when I first started as a pastor, and they knew I was a Seventh-day Adventist, I remember this one pastor, we got really, be, be really good friends. And one day he asked me, you guys, you're Seventh-day Adventists. Why do you spend so much time focusing upon that obscure chapter over there in Leviticus? You know, Leviticus, what is it, 16? You know, about some day of atonement that's, you know, no one does that anymore. What do you, your whole life seems to be centered around this obscure old covenant passage. I didn't have an answer. Kind of hung my head down like, why do we do that? And then I got back to school and I started studying the whole Pentateuch. And I saw that the whole Pentateuch is in this gigantic mountain structure. Like shaped like a mountain in which the center point is the high point. So you got Genesis, which matches Deuteronomy. You got uh, Exodus, which matches Numbers. And here in the middle is Leviticus. And as you go up the Leviticus mountain, the first part are the, uh, the descriptions regarding the sacrifices. And then the second part up the mountain are the, the material describing the works of the priest. And then there's the personal holiness of the people. And then you get to the top. And guess what's chapters at the very top of the mountain? Leviticus 16. This is the only way biblical writers had of showing what was important. They couldn't draw arrows. They couldn't bold. They couldn't put in flashing neon lights. They could just put it into the structure. You put something right at the top of the mountain, 
And ask me, I'm a mountain climber. I don't climb mountains because of all the sweat on the way up. I hate the sweat on the way up. I climb the mountain from the view, from the top. And when you get to the top of the Pentateuchal Mountain, which was God's foundational instruction for us, the view from the top is the Day of Atonement. Now, have you ever thought why that might be? Think of it for an Israelite. On the Day of Atonement, the holiest person in the world, the high priest, went into the holiest place in the world, the most holy place, on the holiest day of the year. Yom Kippur, literally translated Yom HaKippurum, it means the day of ultimate atonement, holiest day of the year, to do the holiest work of the year. And if you translate that up to what's happening in heaven, picture it, the most holy person in the universe, Jesus, has gone into the most holy place in the universe, the holy of holies, to do the holiest work in the whole history of salvation, to restore his sanctuary to its rightful place. And we get to preach that message. Once I saw that, I lost my shame of being an Adventist in this sanctuary message. It's at the heart of the Bible, the foundational pattern of the Pentateuch, and it's at the heart of the whole salvation history, the pinnacle. But it's not enough just to see that. If you want to see the gospel balanced, you go to the book of Leviticus and you read the first 15 chapters as you're moving up toward the Day of Atonement, and it's all about blood. 91 times, blood, 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 blood. The blood of Jesus is the foundation, Norman, as you've written so eloquently, of our salvation. His substitutionary work in our behalf is the basis of my salvation. And so if you don't rip Leviticus 16 out of its context, you leave it right there on top of the mountain, you go all the way up, it's blood. It's the blood of Jesus that stands in my place. But that's not the rest, that's not the whole gospel. The other gospel's coming down the other side. And the key term is holiness. Believe me, I believe in holiness. I believe in holy living. And the Holy Spirit, as we've heard so eloquently this morning, wants to fill us with that holy life. Not in order to make us good enough so we'll be saved. But because this is the outward evidence to the universe that our hearts have been given to Jesus every day. And the holy fruit is the evidence of the holy faith. And so we see the gospel beautifully pictured here in this Pentateuchal mountain. I'm going to have to let these Bible writers come really fast, so here we go. That's Moses. And I was, actually, I was going to give a whole thing, but uh, Gerard did a good job on this in Leviticus 23. You want the five things God wants us and have the privilege for us to do on the Day of Atonement. They're all there in Leviticus 23, five activities. And gather for the sanctuary, gather to the sanctuary is the first one. Yeah, eyes on the sanctuary. Pre identify with the ritual of the priest as he presents an offering by fire. Focus upon our sacrifice, Jesus Christ, the cross, the center of the atoning work. 
and engage in affliction of soul. How do we afflict our souls? I hate that translation. The Hebrew simply says, humble yourself. We humble ourselves by realizing that at the foot of the cross is the highest we can come to present ourselves before God. And we also show it by our actions of living a life of humility and dependence upon him. And then the, the, the fifth one is a work of cleansing. And I couldn't have said it any stronger than Gerard did. It's not I that does the cleansing. Every place in the Bible, in the Old Testament passages, whether you go to uh, Malachi 3 or whether you go to Ezekiel chapter 38 or Leviticus 16, the shout is always, I will cleanse you from all your unfilthiness. My favorite passage is, Ecclesia, is Ezekiel 36, where God says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. I, think, I used to think I had to try, work my hardest to live without sin, and then finally if I could one day live without sin, then maybe God would accept me. No, we got the cart before the horse. We first reach out and take his gift, recognizing our sinfulness, and then assured that he has accepted us, and every day that we are accepted in the beloved, we turn our eyes upon Jesus. And we reach out and claim that promise. He's claimed he is promised to take responsibility for our cleansing. The pressure is off me because he will put in me the spirit of willingness, motivation, and power. And it's not in order to be saved. The basis is Jesus' substitutionary death. But the fruit is every day pouring out more fully until finally God will, will uh, as I, I like to, my brother was a chemist, and he used to tell me how you could put a, a, a have a beaker and have it filled with materials, and then you wanted to put in a catalyst, and you put the catalyst into the fluid, and then all the precipitates would just precipitate out. Ezekiel, if you read Ezekiel 36 and Ezekiel 38, there are two ceilings that takes place. In Ezekiel's term, God says, I will vindicate myself through my people, and I will vindicate myself through Gog and the forces of evil. Because at the end, everyone will be established and settled and strengthened totally into the truth or into the lie. You can't be anyone in between. And then God will say, universe, here's the way of Satan, and here's the way of the gospel. And the whole universe will shout, just and true are your ways, O king of saints. A few snippets as we come to the end. I'd like to have you think about the psalmists. Psalm 73, verse 17. He said, oh, he was confused about the wicked, and he said, and until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Young people today are worried about this world, and when's it ever going to get right? Humans don't seem to be able to pull it off. The sanctuary is the answer for them. 
God will one day make it all right. And the wicked will receive what they should receive. The righteous will receive the reward. Ask Daniel, and he will tell you. And this afternoon, I want to share from the book of Daniel. Uh, but I can't resist telling you this one word from the book of Daniel. If I had to summarize the whole sanctuary message in one word, someone asked me to do it the other day in one sentence. I wrote back and I said, I don't need a sentence. Just give me one word. You want to, do you want the summer of everything we're talking about here this weekend in one word? It's there. It's Daniel 8, 14. Unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be, and the Hebrew word is nitzdak. Nitzdak. And it means basically to be right-wised. If you go to various versions, some versions say restored. Some versions say cleansed. Some versions say vindicated. Which one's right? They're all right. Because there were three problems in 1844 that you read about in the earlier verses. The Tamid, the daily, had been taken away, and that needed to be restored. The sins had caused horror in the heavenly sanctuary. Those needed to be cleansed. And God's people and his sanctuary had been trampled, and when an army tramples someone's sanctuary, the next thing they say is, our God is stronger than your God. And the God of the sanctuary is defamed. And so what needs to happen? Needs to be vindicated. So you want to ask me, what's God doing now? He's engaged in the restoring of the gospel message of righteousness by faith with its special end-time focus. He's engaged in cleansing heaven and this soul temple by his grace. And he's engaged in vindicating his people and himself from the charges of Satan. It's not so hard, right? You can summarize it in a couple minutes. A couple minutes. You go to the New Testament. And I don't have time to expand on this, but you know, Jesus talks about the investigative judgment. But have you ever noticed the context in which he puts it? The pioneers saw that. Matthew 22, Matthew 25, those were their key texts. We sometimes forget about that those texts actually put it in the context of a wedding. Yeah. Now, you're only afraid if you don't have on the wedding garment. But the wedding garment's free. All you have to do is accept the wedding garment and come on into the wedding. And this message of the judgment is about the joy and blessing and privilege of being there when Jesus is married to the holy city and to his people. It's a reason for singing. That's why Revelation talks about the sanctuary in terms of the, the souls under the altar in chapter 5. How long, Lord, before you vindicate? And the answer comes, it's here. It's time for singing because the judgment has come. And he says in the first angel's message, this judgment is euangelion. It's good news. And how about Hebrews? I used to preach about Hebrews, all about what Jesus was doing, the heavenly geography of where he went, when, and it was important. 
to realize he inaugurated the heavenly sanctuary, went up. He didn't start the Day of Atonement, as Ford argues. Day of Atonement's still in the future from the perspective of the first century. But that's not all the message of Hebrews. The existential, relevant message of Hebrews is in four texts that may change your life if you decide to believe these. Hebrews chapter 4. You know all these texts, hopefully. Hebrews 4, verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly. Where? To the throne of grace. Where's that? Is that in your closet when you pray in the worship morning? Throne of grace is not in your closet. It's not even out in these beautiful woods surrounding Southern College. You can go out there, but by faith, he's wanting you to go beyond the woods, beyond the mountain. He wants to come to his throne. I believe the sanctuary is real in heaven, and I believe by faith we can really come by faith to his sanctuary every day. If he said it just once, I might just think that this was a metaphor. But chapter 6 and verse 19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence within the veil. Where? Into the very presence of God. Hebrews 10, verses 19 and 20, therefore, brothers and sisters, having boldness to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, have you gone there today? It's not just a doctrine. I thought if I studied the doctrine and believed it was true, I could stay an Adventist. But I found out something else, something I wasn't expecting, that the sanctuary is all about Jesus, that the sanctuary is all about falling in love with him. It's about being close to him. And he's willing to walk by his spirit with me side by side, but he's got even a better idea. He says, why don't you come to my house? And you don't have to wait until the second coming. You can come now. Come on home, he says. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance. Have you gone to the sanctuary today? I'm not just talking about going once in a while. Here's the last text. It's the punchline, Hebrews 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly of the church join, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better than things of Abel. Not you will come. Not once in a while you'll come. You have come. It's the perfect, which means it's happened and it continues on. He's saying, by faith, you've got a home already, which you can escape, which you can get away from those problems of this life, which you can come and enter into fellowship with him. I said something about Revelation, but I can't help but read this one quote from Revelation. John, in holy vision, beholds the faithful souls that come up out of great tribulation, surrounding the throne of God, clad in white robes, and crowned with immortal glory. What though they have been counted the off-scouring of the earth in the investigative judgment? Now, what's going to be so special about the investigative God judgment as we get closer and closer to the end of time? When our names are being uh, decided against uh, in the earthly tri tribunals, they're condemning us. In the investigative judgment, their lives and characters are brought in review before God. And that solemn tribunal, 
the Supreme Court of the universe reverses the decisions of all the earthly courts. Their faithfulness to God and to his word stands revealed and heaven's highest honors are awarded them as conquerors in the strife with sin and Satan. The relevance of this message will become greater and greater and greater the closer we come to the end of time. Now, when I was here 30 years ago and we started our ATS, chat, uh, actually the whole society, Jack Blanco, is he here today? Jack Blanco became our first president. And that day he asked me to carry on a tradition wherever possible at ATS. And that was to blow the shofar as a thanks to God for this message. And I first learned about the shofar when I was visiting in Israel some years ago. And I attended a ceremony of the um, Day of Atonement right there in the biggest synagogue in Jerusalem. And towards sunset, we went to the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall. And there was an old rabbi holding the shofar, ready to blow it when the sun came down at Yom Kippur. And while we were waiting, I was remembering what my Hebrew teacher, my modern Hebrew teacher, had taught me that week. We didn't speak English in the class. We just listened to her in modern Hebrew. So it took a little while for her to get across. But she brought a shofar. And she said to us, you know what the shofar is all about? She said, look at the way it curves. You see how it curves downward. That's how God wants our lives to be during the Day of Atonement, humbling ourselves, affliction of soul, continually deepening repentance, deepening, deepening repentance. But she said, you know what the shofar is also about? Remember when the shofar was on the ram on Mount Moriah? And the ram was caught in the thicket by the horns of the shofar. And Isaac was supposed to have died on that altar. But God spared Isaac and stayed Abram's hand and says, get the ram and he will die in Isaac's place. The hope of the gospel is in this shofar. And then she told us every 50 years, the shofar was blown at the time of the great jubilee, the gigantic shofar. Wished I could have brought it, it wouldn't fit in my suitcase. But the gigantic shofar was blown to announce freedom, to return to their possessions. And we know that one day soon, Michael the archangel will stand holding that great shofar. And when he blows that trumpet, the graves are going to be opened. And everyone who's died in the Lord will rise to their inheritance. And we will be together with him forever. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.